Hello and welcome to BWB Extra, our follow-up feature to each of our guests' main episodes, and it's where we hand over the reins to our guests to let them lead the conversation with their biggest bugbear, most burning business question, or even just a topic of their choice to discuss with us. The choice is theirs. And this week we continue our conversation with Ben Fogarty, founder and CEO of Expon Digital, who jumps at the chance to offload his annoyance about the time it can take clients to make a decision about a project, only to then expect work to get going immediately once agreed. He also shares his frustrations about the complexities of deciding whether it's a good idea anymore to move to the UK and set up a business, all things considered. Is it going to carry on getting harder and harder? Can the process be improved? Two bugbears with one thing in common. Welcome to The Decision Factor. Okay, so this is where we like to hand the reins over to our guest, and uh, he is going to talk about his (laughs) most annoying bugbear or ask his most burning business question. So what what are you going to do here, Ben? Awesome. Well, if time allows, I have two. So my first one is, we talked about how bad clients are at paying, but the other thing that really, really frustrates me, and I'd love to hear your ideas on what can be done about it, and also just to pat me on the back and say, what a terrible thing this is, but is the idea that it takes so long to get something signed. Like I don't know if it's the same in your industry, but we spend months planning a project, doing proposals, working with the client on what they actually want. You know, sort of getting to it. Then and there's the contract stage, which goes through like many, many iterations. It takes forever because I feel like lawyers are one of these jobs where if they don't mark it up twenty thousand times, they're not doing their job properly. Doesn't matter how good the contract is. You know, so you go through all these hurdles. It takes so much long. And then when the projects finally start, it's like, right, when can you start? We need to start tomorrow. We need to, we need to really get going. This, this, this idea of how can it take three months to agree to do a project and then this immediate, it has to happen tomorrow. And I will just throw in there, I also know that I'm terrible at this on the flip side, both with my accounting firm, Mary Clark, and, uh, but, 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 you know, like, whereas when I decide I want something, I, I, I do want it tomorrow, you know, like, because I've left it too long or because it's an urgent need and that sort of stuff. So, but this whole idea that the industry takes so long to decide things, but then when they decide it has to happen right now or it's not good enough, everything's urgent. And we've got to try and solve that. I want you guys to solve it. I want to, I, firstly, I want to know, is it, is, it, is it the same for you well, guys? Well, first of all, get rid of the contract. It's <laughs> a fucking of waste contract. of space. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of joking. I'm sort of being, the contract's less than 300 grand. You're not going to go to court anyway. It's not worth it. So what's the point of the contract? I have one thing that only, it, I wouldn't, wouldn't have had to answer this in the last 12 months, but we are planning on potentially listing on the Australian Stock Exchange, our parent company. You're going to need the contract. we're going to need the contract. <laughs> <laughs> no, the you know, my, my, my lawyer friends will get upset with me, but no, I'm, I'm, yeah. you're asking how do we no, make no, it. I agree. It is true, contracts take a lot of time. Yeah. And to the most part, there's no real point in having them. I'm not right. sure that they uh, yeah. really clarify no. anything that anyone remembers. They cost too much money. They take a lot of time. I completely agree with you there. Yeah, and you find yourself having arguments about stuff that hasn't happened. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And probably won't ever have falling, falling out if? over it, you know. Yeah. You, you can have an awful situation where everyone's friends and everyone ends up fighting over something. Yeah. I think there's there's a theory about contract writing. I remember someone who used to work for Virgin say they used to do this, is that you have to persuade your lawyer to go in with a very fair proposal rather than a negotiable proposal. 
So there's definitely a problem with just the fact that lawyers are kind of trained to take up a reserved position on the basis that negotiation will pull them down a path. And they, a bit like doctors, that, well, they have this sort of fundamental duty to protect your rights beyond anything else. I have to protect them to an extreme, as opposed to my biggest duty is that you get the deal done. And that's what their first duty should be, is that I get this deal done for you. And a good lawyer does. I mean, I, you know, the people in this building do. They recognize this person needs to get this deal done. So uh, if you take a simple example, like you know, a distribution agreement, you can write a distribution agreement in a way that you will never get it signed and you will negotiate it. Or you could write, and I'm, I swear it's possible, you know, to write a distribution agreement that is two pages, incredibly fair. It's yeah. probably generous, yeah. you know, but just makes the person read it. Well, I think I know why it is. And that's that people find it hard to make decisions. So they put them off. And that's at the individual level. And the bigger the decision, the more likely it is to get put off. Particularly if they're deciding between two or three different things and there's a certain amount of unknown involved, they find it even harder. And what really slows the process down is when the decision is being made collectively in a company and it's not the owner or the top number head honcho of the company making the decision, but people tier or two down because then there's career risk involved. Right. And so the decision that gets taken when there's career risk involved always tends to be the less imaginative, the least bold, the one that can't reflect badly on them if it goes wrong. Yeah, plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So you go, well, you know, let's say you were deciding which TV program to commission and you go, well, it had the best actor and it had the best writer and it had the best music and it had the best director. So, you know, I don't think it was an unreasonable, you know, so if, as, if you've got all the sort of safety things in line, so I, I think that's why it takes so long. I think you're onto something there because I, I remember someone that I used to work with back in Australia at one point who um, was basically a business manager for a very wealthy individual and would just pick the middle quote out of three every time. It wasn't about analysing each quote or proposal. It wasn't about, you know, um, which one's better, which one's going to be. No, I think it's, it was a terrible plan. It was blind. It was blindfolded. It was just like, this one's 20K, this one's 10K, this one's 15K, I'm going the one in the middle. And it was about covering bases, wasn't it? It's like, I, I, didn't, I didn't get ripped off because I didn't go with the most expensive one. I'm not going to get shit because I didn't go with the cheapest one. So I just picked the one in the middle. And I think that there is this a bit of like, like what you're, you're alluding to, this idea of like covering your own back, especially when you aren't the owner of the business who you know that you know, you'll, you'll, you'll make and break your own decisions, you're happy with that. But when you've got your job to protect, when you've got your responsibility, you don't want to launch into a decision without getting validation from that person and that person and a pat on the back from your boss to go that this decision's okay and you're not going to be held accountable if it doesn't work. And I, th I think you're onto something there. And the bigger the company, the worse it gets. I agree. You're yep. definitely right. IBM have got their manual. It's this graph about big decisions and it was the last stage is risk. So they have, they have at the start, they say, oh, it cost me 10 million pounds, this problem. So I'm willing to pay anything up to 10 million pounds to solve this problem. That's where they start. So they look at everything on the market. They look at crazy solutions. They're just like, yeah, we're going to get fucking this crazy person. And then what happens just before they make the actual, they get stuck on then the decision. The last stage is, is all about risk. Like all the things you're talking about, you know, did we pick the right company? Da, da, da. And that just reduces everything. It was all a fucking waste of time. Yeah, basically. That's a you're waste suddenly of time. down to... Oh, well, we'll go with, um, uh, you know, SAP. The safest it's, it's one, yeah. big and they have delivered things. I mean, the other thing that strikes me is things, 
go wrong. People overpromise and then they underdeliver because they have to do that to win the contract. So yeah. maybe back to your bullshit theory, yeah. you almost need to say to them, right, okay, look, brace yourselves because I am not going to talk any shit and I'm not going to waste any fucking time on yeah. it. You know, these are the contract. It's very fair. It's non-negotiable. Yep. We can deliver this on time, but you have to make a decision this week. Imagine doing that. Imagine doing that. That'd be awesome. I was just saying to Dee, I was clearing my shed out yesterday and I was getting so indecisive about some old box or this. Oh, do I want to throw this out? And I take it out throw it away and then I go back and I get it and I'd be like oh no actually no I should and then I find you know and I was like this is fucking ridiculous Annie you're 43 years old just be bold they're very hard to make decisions the word to decide comes from the Latin word which means to cut off as in to cut off one's head to kill and we don't like killing things we like to keep our options open and I think that's why instinctively it's easier to put off a decision but a lot of those self-help books and so on often say it's more important to make a decision than it is for it yeah. to be the right decision yeah. i don't think that applies at the company level in a company environment but i think at the individual level it often does because you can always undo what you've done and you learn from it yeah we often get the scenario where it's like the first part of the conversation is right guys we've got to launch in november because of xyz right and then you go, well, yeah, if we can start next week, we could launch in November, no problem. You know, that, that, that sort of thing. And then that becomes a proposal round and it becomes like, to your point, like there's all the checklists and things like that that go through. And then, then it becomes the legal back and forth and that sort of thing. You're at the beginning of November before you even start, but they've still got this expectation of like, but we still have to launch in November. You guys can still do that, right? It's like, no, of course we can't fucking do it. Like we, we were supposed to start three months ago. You know, this is it's that sort of thing, right? That, so I love that analogy of actually of cutting off the head of making it, let's just make a decision, let's kill it. Well, you've <laughs> like, got to create a scenario where I make me an offer I can't refuse. So the one you do this sometimes in corporate finance and stuff. You say to them, okay, it's uh, if I deliver on time, it's full rate. If I don't deliver on time, it's half right. Yeah. And then you have to create some sort of scenario where it's like, okay, yeah, the contract's not negotiable, but it's incredibly fair if you have to have one. Yeah. I don't know. You've got you've got to decide. Um, anyone, you, you'd have to lay it out, wouldn't you? To say, any, lots of people could do this job, but no one can do this job in a month. So if you want to deliver it by November, I reckon you've got, you've got to tell them the timetable right. for yeah. their decision, haven't you? Yeah, that's a good point. And now a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Dominic Frisby sat down with Richard Ory, Ian Phipps, and Gemma Lalwani to talk about property. What is the biggest mistake a tenant makes when leasing a property? I would probably say not limiting their repairing obligations. So especially if you're taking an office that isn't necessarily in a brand new building, um, I would always recommend having a photographic schedule of condition to show the current state of repair and condition of the property. Otherwise, tenants with full repairing and insuring lease are going to be responsible for putting the property into a perfect state of repair and condition, even if that's not the state that they received it in. 
I remember I recently leased a property, well, recently, it was about three years ago, but I'd sort of grown up, and in the old days, everything was written down, so they'd describe how the property looked. And the lease that I got now, it was literally just somebody just gone around with their camera phone and photographed it, and that was the lease. And I thought, there's modern technology for you. That was one of the issues we were actually discussing, because... It's great to have photos of the area, but sometimes photos don't show everything. So having an annotated schedule of condition can be even better. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. The other way to force a decision, I think, is somehow in person, or if you can't get in person, on the phone. Uh, as soon as decisions are made by emails, yeah, I agree with that. it's much easier to say no, and it's much easier to not decisions answer an email. Decisions aren't made by emails. You're right, people say no by email. Or they just ignore, they give you the silent no and don't reply to your fucking emails. Oh yeah, we get that. Oh my God, you spent hours crafting it. Putting people in a corner is really difficult, though. Like, the British people tend to be... It's like the Japanese concept. They always need the third door. Is it yes? Is it no? Or is it that you would like some more time to consider matters, you know? And it's like there's something intrinsically hard about putting me in a, a corner to... You could do it if you set me up. You could say, right, I'm I I'm not saying you necessarily you... have to corner people, but you're more likely to get an outcome. Yeah. That's true, in person. One of my friends uh, read a book called The Dice Man. Do you remember that book? Do you, do you ever no. read the book called The Dice Man? I, I read about the first 100 pages. It's got like the best opening 50 pages of any book ever, and then it just sort of gets a bit boring. Everyone's got 50 pages of a book in them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it was about a guy who just made all his decisions. He'd give himself six options and roll a dice, Ooh. and then took all his decisions based on that. And a guy who I went backpacking with a long time ago, just took that. Because when you go backpacking, you have to make so many bloody decisions. Yeah, which yeah, restaurant yeah. do we go to? Which yeah. guest house do we stay in? Which, you know, there's just so many miniature decisions that you just can't possibly know in advance. And unless you want to become one of those sort of guidebook whores that does everything based on TripAdvisor <laughs> or the guidebook. So it just, a lot of the time, is you know, we built this habit of just flip a bloody coin. Because yeah. we don't know. So you may as well flip a coin because at least we've got a decision. And it was sort of quite effective for a bit. And then it sort of annoyed me because you could blame the coin yeah. and you could defer responsibility to the yeah, coin. Yeah. We just did solve the sales cycle, right? It's like, what can we find to blame? Because you were talking before about like, they yeah. just don't blame the coin. About their, own, uh, their own back. So but let's, when you're talking to them, how, how can we identify the thing that goes, what will help you make the decision so you don't have to make the decision? You know, it is about finding that thing, isn't it? Find the, find the coin in the situation and go. Just to finish the story yeah, yeah. off, we went on this we have this sort of annual trip every year where we go and do something as a group. This is all my old school and university friends. And we had the one a um, couple of weeks ago, we all went rowing on the on the river, uh, up your neck of the woods, Andy. Yeah. And uh, I saw him thinking about something and I saw him get a coin out of his pocket and flip no. a coin and make the bloody decision. Still doing and I'm it. like, you're 52 years old. You're still <laughs> yet letting the coin... You know, make decisions. Pretty sure for there's you. a Batman character villain that does that, doesn't it? Like, yeah, feels like it. Oh, there's the two-sided coin, yeah, two-faced. That's right. Yeah. I read a book about willpower, and you only have it in you to make a certain amount of decisions every day, and you might expend as much decision-making energy on what shirt to wear as you do on, you know, which business to buy or whatever. You know, you you expend as much energy on 
like you and your box, stupid, trivial, yeah. meaningless decisions. And in order to save their energy, apparently this is why Mark Zuckerberg and Barack Obama, Bar Barack Obama would wear the same suit every day, all the time. Ah, and Mark Zuckerberg wears the same, you know, whatever it is, jeans and T-shirt combo for everything so that he never has to waste energy on stupid shit like that. It does feel like it takes energy to make decisions, doesn't it? I mean, I was thinking also businesses like to appear busy. So you go into the room and it's, oh, everything's terribly, you know, we're doing... They could be fucking going down the toilet and going for lunch that afternoon and right. not doing fuck all. So they'd have to give an impression of how, you know, urgent and important this business is and these changes. So this is it. You need to create a framework of, for decision-making for people to say, these are the things you should look at when making this decision. Yeah, I like that. Almost like pre-guessing their criteria and try and tick every box from the first moment. Yeah, sort of yeah. Like, so yeah. these are the reasons you make this decision. Yeah. Here it all is in a box. I don't know. They'd probably be so confused by the whole experience. <laughs> yeah, I'd like, like, just quite like to take my time if that's okay, you know. <laughs> But get Australians. Hire Australians in all decision-making roles. Because they, they love it. You uh, guys yeah. love it. Yeah. I don't know why you love it so because much. Because they want to get to the pub. We don't want to muck around talking get about shit. Yeah. <laughs> get to the pub. I would like to claim it's my spidey sixth sense, but it's actually the pre-show notes. Uh, tell me that you're, you have another bugbear. I do have another bugbear. So I came over to this country about seven years ago. Uh... Uri Clark was on the journey with me from the beginning. But how difficult is it to come over here and try and start a business? There's lots of things that work really well, like many open industries. For some stupid reason, British people love Australians and love working with them. That's nice. When it comes to the visas that you need to get, opening a bank account, recognized to try and get a more, like to live over here and to try and run that business, it seems like there's hurdle after hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. It is only because of the size of some of the industries, I think, the, uh, the size of the industry over here and what used to be before Brexit, the idea of, oh, it's, the, it's a doorstep to Europe, that made it worthwhile, surely. Like having now been through it and brought my business over here and gone through the personal pain of, you know, what is still still on a journey of trying to get citizenship, it's almost impossible to recommend to someone, you should start a business and uh, from Australia, come over here and launch that business in the UK. Extremely right. controversial. Andy, this is. <laughs> Andy I'm going to pass the microphone over to you. And Andy Ori is now going to rant at you for five minutes about why the UK is such a good place to do yeah. business. If you came from France, you wouldn't think that. Or if you came from India or a fucking, low, I mean, Lebanon, uh, who was I just on the phone to? Greece. Right. You know, um, Australia and New Zealand are just about the easiest places in the world to do business. I think they're on the metric. I mean, yeah. you can form companies. Everything's like, what do you want? Here it is. Yeah. You know? Uh, so your first problem is you're entering a country which thinks it isn't very bureaucratic because it compares itself to Europe, but it's actually plenty bureaucratic. Yeah. I mean, the visa thing's going to improve. Is it? I mean, it already has improved, but we should, we should likely have close to free movement uh -huh. of people. But um, I think... I think what's difficult is going to another country and starting a business is is is, is very difficult. Yeah, I think I, I would find it slightly easier to go to Australia and do that 
because it would just be certain things would just be a bit easier, including getting the business off the ground. But our job is to make it easy for people to come into the UK and do it. But I now do add to that chat after someone saying to me like two years later, you fucking said it was going to be easy. <laughs> it's been a nightmare. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I now need to explain to people, look, we'll make it easier. But I would pick up the, I don't think relevant of Brexit, I'm, I'm still seeing that people come here to put their business. In fact, you know, like the phone call this morning with Greece, it, a lot of companies are like, oh shit. We need to go set up in the UK to build out our business in Europe. And those are Europeans doing it. So the thing is, UK law, our common law, the way companies work, the way you don't have to live here to own a company, the way it's structured. I mean, there's, there's no apostling, no notarization. There's all this stuff that make it a very attractive place to form businesses. Moving here, living here. That comes with a, a raft of complications. Yeah. And like getting a mortgage, because you might fuck off back to Australia and banking is an international. Exactly. That's not even a British thing. Like, it's yeah. like, you know, can I borrow money in Australia? No, because you could leave and we can't be asked to track you down. And, yeah. you know, so I don't know why suddenly after two years they think, oh, well, that's all right. Then give him a mortgage. He must be here for ages. It's <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm sorry you had a, a tough time, but all, all I could say is we compare ourselves to uh, Europe, not to Australia. Yeah, yeah. And Europe is insanely difficult to do anything, you know, yeah. in terms of companies, you know. I mean, in, in France, when you set up a company, you have to tell them what the company does on the first day. And it has to do exactly that. You cannot do anything but that, you right. know. And I mean, I think I've said this before, but, you know, my friends, um, clients, they do, they they take the scooters off the street and they maintain them. So they put, they were mechanics and the French government forced them to hire a mechanic because they're mechanics. And they said they'd be mechanics and that's it. <laughs> they had to hire this bloke, you know, Pierre, <laughs> who sits in around France going, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm sorry you had a difficult time, but yeah. Well, I mean, and you guys are paying me to say this, but Uri Clark made it tremendously more easy than I've heard from from other people uh, just around the experience. I've actually moved over here twice and the second time around with with your help was was much, much smoother. But it does, it does just, yeah, it just gets on my nerves that I understand like even now having finally having you know a business settled in, in the UK, to work with Europe, it's it's fine because you know you don't have to go and be there and set up there to work with them. It, it is more challenging when it comes to like Australia and New Zealand and then trying to work with Europe because of the time zone difference. So you do literally need a team on the ground here. So why the massive challenge? So, so business-wise, yeah, you're right. It is actually quite easy to come and trade here and come and like, offer your services here and all that sort of stuff. You can set up branches, you can set up, you know, all, that, that part's fantastic, but put people on the ground here is damn near impossible. Like the hurdles. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of BWB Extra. Thank you to Ben Fogarty for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listener, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, follow us on Spotify, and come say hi on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at bizwithoutbs, B-I-Z without B-S. Until next time, it's cheerio. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at auriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.